I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. There it is, the phoenix. Oh, yeah. There's the Canary Island date palm. Look, 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 just up there. Last week, I went on a little tree treasure hunt with RHS botanist James Armitage. We ambled through the streets of London looking for weird and wacky tender trees that have survived here against all the odds. So just as we were leaving Egerton Gardens, we caught sight of some palm fronds waving above the treetops. So we've scuttled over in massive botanical excitement and we found the biggest Canary Island date palm I have seen in this country ever. I was worried we'd have a little trouble pinpointing the particular plants we looked up on social media ahead of time. But boy, I was wrong. I mean, we saw olive trees, avocado trees, citrus trees with whopping great lemons on them. I won't give it all away, but it was the type of experience that would thrill any fellow botanical nerds out there. And it wasn't just some wild goose chase, I promise. I had a purpose, and it brings me to the theme of today's episode, which is hardiness. This week, we're investigating what exactly makes a plant hardy, how tropical plants survive British winters, and the ways in which what thrives here may be changing, especially in urban environments like London. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. So James, what's intrigued you about our tour of surprisingly hardy trees? Well, I'm just big into lots of different uh, trees. And in London, as you look around, you see some amazing things. We've hardly stepped out of the door here in Shoreditch. And we're confronted by this incredible creature, a six metre tall olive tree, just planted as a street tree, as you do. And it promises great things for the day. And to see an olive on a street in London is just this fantastic sight. You know, most, most streets up and down the country, all the street tree planting is all deciduous, so you're just looking at bare twigs at this time of year. And here you have this wonderful silvery grey foliage that moves gently in the breeze. And olives are, you know, they're a Mediterranean plant. They come from within 50 miles of the Mediterranean basin. That, that's where they grow. And to see them hundreds, if not a thousand miles north, is just, it's just an incredible sight, really. I think one thing to say about olives, though, is I've always judged them in the UK a bit of an overrated thing because until they get to a certain age, they're kind of a bit like privet. <laughs> uh, they're the same family and they've got these quite privety leaves. But once they start to get a bit gnarly and a bit older, that's when all the character comes in. And this one's got like a proper trunk. In fact, this trunk is growing so much, it's actually growing into the railings that in, enclose it. 
so it's starting to get some of that personality and the leaves take on a sort of, you know, you can imagine them up against a, a blue Mediterranean sky and sort of white undersides and grey silver on top. So this, this starts to sort of tickle the interest of a plantsman like me. What do you think this can tell us about plant hardiness and the way that our planting palette might be shifting in this country? Well, one thing it, it tells is, is about warmer summers, for sure. These are plants of Mediterranean climates, really, and you would expect them not to ripen their wood fully in the UK, which is one reason, of course, why they would get cut back by the frost. But here in London, with all these walls around, everything is a wall garden. So these things are obviously getting enough heat in the, the summers that we're having in the UK to not just live and survive, but thrive and reproduce. It's very exciting, really. Why don't we go and take a look at some of the other trees on this street? This is proper bonkers, isn't it, James? This is a, a fascinating thing to see. It's a hibiscus, hibiscus syriacus. It's got no leaves at this time of year, but you can still see it's holding onto its um, little shell-like crispy fruits. And also it's got a good identification thing for hibiscus in wintertime is its whiskery stipules. To these like little little bits here. It just holds on to these little whiskers at the ends of the branches. But this has got to be, I don't know, three, three metres tall. And I've never seen the like planted in a, in a street. It's, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You can imagine that just covered in those big kind of blue hollyhock type flowers in the middle of summer. It's, yeah, it takes you abroad, doesn't it, really, in, in one fell swoop? It does. This is a plant from India, China. So, it, you know, it, it is hardy in the, in the UK, but it takes a bit, of, a bit of foresight to see this as a street tree. It's usually a, a shrub in the UK. And next to the hibiscus, we've got this fantastic fijoa, haven't we? This is, again, this is something that I know as a shrub. You know, I've got one on my allotment, which is a bit disappointingly small. The only place I've seen it really, really thrive in the UK is on a south-facing wall. As you go into Hampton Court Palace Flower Show, there's one there, and that, that kind of does its thing. But then this here, in the middle of London, it's now, it's a three, four metre tree. It's quite a sight. I was thinking of that exact plant at Hampton Court. <laughs> and the, there's one um, that grows near where I live, which is by the seaside, and it's doing quite well. But this thing is fantastic. If you don't know it, it's a member of the eucalyptus family, and it gets these red and white flowers, and it's got these fleshy petals, which you can actually eat, which are followed by quite big fruit, and it's called pineapple guava. People hardly ever get a crop off it. But this thing, I'd be prepared to bet, in mm. the future, will fruit because it's just planted right by a wall. It's going to be getting loads and loads of heat off that. And it's already absolutely huge. Yeah, it's really living its best life. I love pineapple guavas because I've never managed to get mine to fruit. But like you say, the petals of it are absolutely delicious. They're kind of like, they're a bit like sweets almost. They look like slightly marshmallowy texture with a real almost bubblegum type flavor. It's a, it's a mad thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great thing. And it could be coming to a garden near you soon because uh, <laughs> if it's growing happily in London this year then chances yeah. are in a few more years it'll be growing happily with you. This was just one street in Shoreditch but now we're off to a completely different part of London. We're off to Chelsea.
we'll return to our treasure hunt at the end of the programme and all the goodies that we discovered in Chelsea. But first, I wanted to step back for a moment and think about the practicalities of incorporating the trees we came across on Rivington Street into a garden not in London or perhaps not in the south at all. We talked about olive trees, pineapple guavas, a hibiscus, and I think it is becoming more and more reasonable to expect to be able to grow these outside of the southeast. The thing that limits a lot of them is they need summer warmth to ripen the wood to make it hardy to survive the winter. And as our summers get hotter and we have more heat waves, that might stress some of our native plants, but it helps these ones to prepare for the winter ahead. One way to maximise the summer heat is to grow things against a wall. Lots of these are absolutely perfect wall plants if you've got a south or a west facing wall. Some of them you can even train. There's some brilliant examples of trained judas trees, Circus siliquestrum down at Wisley, and you can fit that into a bed that's only a foot or so wide away from a wall. It's absolutely amazing. It's down by the cafe at Wisley. But if you want to get like a real Mediterranean vibe in your garden, I think one of the most important things to do is to plant evergreens. I think we do neglect evergreens in this country, and there are loads that are hardy. One of my absolute favourites is something called Filirea angustifolia, which is related to privet. It has smaller dark green leaves, kind of the colour of yew tree leaves, and it is actually a Mediterranean native, but it's pretty hardy in the UK, and it can make a beautiful topiary, it can make a small tree, depending on how you prune it. Stone pines as well, you know, that classic umbrella-shaped pine tree that you get if you visit Rome or anywhere around the Mediterranean, really. They're hardy in the UK, and they take a little while to get going, but they're really worth planting. But when it comes to hardiness, sometimes it's not the genus of the plant that's a problem, but the particular species and varieties. Even in genera like eucalyptus, which is made up of aromatic trees native mainly to Australia, there are some hardier ones and there are some less hardy ones, but many of them can easily withstand British winters. So for our next story, we're visiting Hilary Collins, CEO of Grafton Nurseries, to get a sense of what gum trees can teach us about hardiness. We specialise in growing upwards of 70 different species cultivars and varieties of eucalyptus suitable for growing in the UK, either outdoors, but also we've got some that are suitable for conservatories and greenhouses. Eucalyptus are almost essentially from the Antipodes, that's sort of Australia, Tasmania and they are the most popular tree, and by that I mean they are the most frequently encountered tree in the Antipodes, and they are amazingly well adapted. They are specialists within that environment. You'll find them in arid conditions, sclerophyll forests, swamps, waterlogged flats, tropical conditions, mm -hmm. rainforest type conditions, they are climate change resilient, they're hugely adaptable, they are amongst the largest trees on the planet, plants on the planet, but they also appear as small shrubs and mallees, which are multi-stemmed. They tend to have leathery foliage with a thick cuticle, but not all of them. Their foliage can be green or blue, it doesn't have to always be blue. There's quite a bit of burgundy around in the family as well, so new stems, new growth, new foliage can be burgundy. A common question we get asked are, are eucalyptus hardy for the UK? Plant hardiness, it's a really complicated subject. 
is that plant growing, you know, is it on the Pennines in Yorkshire? Is it in balmy Cornwall or sheltered Devon? Hardiness is a whole pile of factors. It's also that plant and how healthy it is and the state it's in and the triggers it's received from its environment. Some species and subspecies of eucalyptus are hardy for the UK climate as they are in Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, provided they've been through a process of becoming hardy for winter. And if the conditions aren't right, they won't change their metabolism, their biological makeup, and they won't be hardy for winter. So the trigger for that, for eucalyptus, is they need to have nighttime temperatures consistently at around about plus five degrees in the autumn. Day length is shortening, nighttime temperatures are cooler, and then they slide gracefully into November, December time, and they become hardy then because they have thickened their sap, they've stopped growing like crazy, they have got a nice woody thick jacket, their cell walls have thickened, so they're much more resilient to UK winter. And some species, the snow gums, they'll go down to minus 16, minus 18 Celsius, provided they're not stressed. They need to have been through that hardening process. They want no grass, no weeds around their base. They don't want to be in waterlogged conditions and they need to be nutritionally happy, i.e. have enough potassium in their system to get them through this process. In a perfect world for eucalyptus growing in the UK, I, I would like the weather to behave itself, get to plus five in October, slide down to maybe one or two degrees for the whole of December through January, into February, it's allowed to rise a little bit to plus five, plus eight in February, and then go into a nice warm spring of 10 degrees without any frost. That would be perfect. So we've got no control over the weather. It is what it is, but there are certain things that we can do for our eucalyptus trees to help them survive. The most important thing is choosing the right species from the right provenance, so hardy seed from frosty valley bottoms, high mountain tops. It needs to be airport grown. You need to have the right root formation. The eucalyptus grown in smooth wall pots have been subjected to the wall of death and they have a spiral root system. Eucalyptus need to be grown in the airport containers, invented for ukes, and then they'll have a nice radial root system which is healthy. Choose the right species for your growing environment. So if you are a cold garden with clay soil, then I would choose something like subcrenulata or eucalyptus France Bleu if you want a really small one. When you come to plant, you need to dig a hole that's two foot deep and fill that hole with good quality topsoil mixed with up to 20% sharp sand and plant it into that planting pit, if you like, of good quality soil so that it roots down deeply into the warmer soil for winter. Then thereafter, it's important to make sure it gets plenty of water during the growing season and also a little bit in the winter in its formative years. If it's a cold, dry winter, you need to water your evergreens. During the growing season, 
you want no grass, no weeds around the trunk for at least a metre. And a bark chip mulch would be wonderful, or a hessian mulch mat, something to keep the roots free from competition from grass. And then if you want to add on extra things you can do, giving them a high potassium feed late summer really helps because potassium helps them go through that process of ripening their wood for winter, thickening cell walls, producing thick bark. Clay soil, a wet soil, there's a wide range. Gunny-eye group has six or seven members in it. You can have a dwarf one like Archeri, France Bleu, Azura. There's also Eucalyptus parvula, Kybene gum. Stellulata is also beautiful. If you have dry to normal soil, then I would have a look at the snow gums. The hardiest eucalyptus is Eucalyptus debezivili, impossibly named Junama snow gum. But there's also things like Gregsoniana, which is really beautiful with big flower clusters. And the mountain gums like Micheliana and Kybinensis are equally beautiful and don't get too large either. So the best time of year to plant eucalyptus is as you head into the spring, because then the soil is warming, day length is increasing, and they feel inclined to really get growing very quickly. Then they can spend a whole hot summer in your garden establishing before they hit a winter in its new garden with you. So plant spring, water loads and loads over the summer, mulch well for the winter, and then it should be fine going into that winter. And we have to realise that one winter in 11 on average, we're going to get a really terrible, biting cold winter. So there is always the risk that we might lose some plants during those really extreme winters. The older the plants are, certainly with eucalyptus, the older the eucalyptus is, once it's got over at the age of five, it stands a much better chance of surviving those really cold snaps and bad winters. But we're, we're always going to have to be aware that we might lose one or two plants. But I, I still think we're incurable optimists. We keep giving it a go. Thanks there to Hilary. I absolutely love eucalyptus. They are one of my favorite plants. I love them because they're so multifaceted. So you grab a eucalyptus leaf, you crush it, you get this most beautiful scent. And the scent varies as well. Some of them are really mentholy, quite minty. Some of them are more camphorous. Some of them are almost spicy. They're absolutely lovely. I visited Hillary's nursery back in August. We we're doing a plant profile shoot for the Garden Magazine. And actually, if you, if you fancy finding out more about eucalyptus, have a look at the February issue, which you can get via the magazine, or you can read the article on the Garden app as well. And now we return to London. Chelsea's been home to botanical wonders for hundreds of years. I mean, like the Chelsea Physic Garden, which is a wellspring of horticultural knowledge. And it's been around since 1673. And all these years later, the ostentatious streets of West London still live up to that legacy. Thank you. 
we've popped up above ground at Sloan Square and we've come through the beautiful red brick streets. We've been admiring some stairwell gardens that are full of houseplants that have escaped. So you've got some Boston ferns, some Nephrolepis and some spider plants living their best life. You know, they look like they've been there for years and made this sort of luxuriant mini jungle in someone's stairwell. It's pretty unexpected, wasn't it, James, to see that kind of level of what you would think of as a tender plant just thriving outdoors. Yeah, I guess they don't get any frost there at all in that little um, alcove and you could grow pretty much anything there, I should think. Uh, well, we've just stumbled upon this amazing Melia azederach, which is a, is a proper tree. It's absolutely huge. It's not much smaller than the London Plains and it's just growing as a, as a street tree. And it's, a, it's really, again, it's a really easy thing to grow mm. from seed and people, they shouldn't, but people bring fruit back from foreign holidays and grow these things, but then they just inevitably die. But here it hasn't died and it's got absolutely gigantic. You still see fruit hanging off it actually, uh, high up in the, in the branches and they are high up. You couldn't shin up this tree. The first branches are about, about four metres off the ground. It's bonkers. It's the biggest one I've ever seen because when I gardened in the south of France before I started my job at the RHS, one of our local towns had these planted around the town square and they were they were half the height of this and that's, you know, that's in the south of France. It's a cool thing, isn't it? Persian lilac it's also known as and it's also known as the bead tree because the seeds have these fantastic kind of ribs to them. They used to get used as rosary beads. Yeah, they're really kind of sculptural little seeds. Quite, quite a cool thing. And yeah, and the bark is like properly fissured. It just looks like another hardy tree that you would, yeah. you would see. And here it is growing in London fantastically well. So another taste of things to come. You, mm. you might expect this to survive perhaps in Cornwall and the southern coast, south coast, Eastbourne, places like that maybe. But it could be another one coming to a garden near you yeah. soon. And great foliage plants as well, actually. So even if you can't grow one outdoors you could perhaps grow one in a in a pot in in the conservatory for a, a few mm. years till it got too big and then maybe stick it outside and see what happens see what happens yeah. cool and just a stone's throw from the persian lilac we have an avocado there's a sort of a paving stone slab sized patch of soil where somebody has planted an avocado they've grown from a a, a seed i imagine and it's literally Oh, what would you say, 20 metres away from, <laughs> yeah. from the Melia Zedarak. So this has got to be one of the botanical hotspots of London, hasn't it? <laughs> but it's, it's fully evergreen. I can't see any fruit on it at the moment. Somebody's been pruning it, I think, up at the top, so it could yeah. get even bigger. There's signs just at the very top that it, it's been nibbled by the frost, but otherwise it's got these thick, waxy, loraceous leaves, mm. a bit like huge... Um, Loris nobilis. Yes, I was just thinking that. You can see it's related to bay trees, yeah. can't you? Yeah, but I, I would think this could be capable of bearing fruit in the very near future, if it doesn't already. Yeah. So it does show you the value of growing things. If you want to try something that isn't maybe known for its hardiness, if you want to push the boundaries of what you can grow in your garden and start by planting things against a south-facing wall, because that will give them a really good head start in life. But London's just like one gigantic big microclimate, isn't mm. it? Because there's walls everywhere and it's reflecting surfaces, yeah. bouncing the heat around. So everything's getting a, a bit Good of a toasting all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how fantastic.
We've moved on from the avocado and now we're on Egerton Gardens. And James and I are just, we're just peering over the fence onto a um, beautiful London square. What's that palm, James? Well, now this is jolly exciting because this is Washingtonia robusta, I think. There's two main species, Filifera and Robusta. And we're looking at this one from a bit of a distance, but it looks like Robusta to me. And we're just peering over this beautifully clipped yew hedge past Pittsburgh Irene Patterson, which is very variegated leaves, through a gorgeous acacia with mm. its citrus lemon flowers, and then at this palm tree, which must be, I don't know. Eight like metres? Something, I was going to say, about eight metres tall. Yeah. What else can you see around it? Pseudopanax ferox. All manner of goodies in there, purple cord lines. So it's this like exotic little enclave. And what an amazing tree. So, James, this is a great example of a palm doing really well. What do you think about growing palms in the UK in general? I mean, I always love the idea. It just seems so incongruous. You know, a few hundred miles from the Arctic Circle, you might think about growing palms. But there is an incredible range of palms that you can grow in the UK. I mean, there's, apart from Trachycarpus fortunii, there's lots of other Trachycarpus that you can grow. Sabals, I find grow from seed very easily but they're very 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 slow but they do seem to be extremely hardy and you see phoenix canariensis around a lot now now when i was a lad when we were lads you hardly saw that that at all and i remember in the rhs a to z of gardening it got uh, a minimum of 10 degrees c well nobody would say that now no. i've got one in my garden that's this december survive minus two minus three with minimal damage and you see that around a lot but this perhaps is the next one to make it big, Washingtonia. And you do see it sold in big homeware stores and things like that. And so people not knowing what it is probably just think, I'll just bung it in my garden. I think you'll see a lot more of these getting through. Camerops humilis is the other one, the little mm, Mediterranean, Mediterranean found palm. Um, palm. Not the biggest species, but it, it will definitely survive in London and, and other favoured areas. Again, that's one I grow in my garden. So, um, yeah, the one I crave to grow is Rapala stylus sapida, the world's most southerly palm, oh, the yes. New Zealand's only native palm. I've seen that in Penzance in Cornwall, and you get big ones on Tresco and the Isles of Scilly. But this would do for starters, I have to say. Absolutely. I hear there's a Canary Island date palm just around the corner, so should we go and have a look? Uh, yeah, let's try and find it, yeah. There it is, the phoenix. Oh, yeah. There's the Canary Island date palm. Look, 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 just up there. So just as we were leaving Egerton Gardens, we caught sight of some palm fronds waving above the treetops. So we've scuttled over in massive botanical excitement and we found the biggest Canary Island date palm I have seen in this country ever. It's a whopper, isn't it, James? This is a staggering thing and it's surrounded by equally staggering things. Beside it is this Butea capitata, another palm, South American palm. And then just below its arching fronds is a citrus. And up its trunk are growing um, these bromeliads, which you would normally only see as house plants, conservatory plants. It's unbelievable. You would think you were in, in the Mediterranean or the Holy Land or something, and not London at all, not the UK. It, it's extraordinary to see this. It is big. I couldn't get my arms around it. The individual fronds are four metres long, I'd say, three metres, four metres. It's just almost like this fountain of green. It's a really special thing. 
and right up at the top there, up in the crown, you can see a flower spike, I do believe. See that orange, orange flower spike there? Quite extraordinary. And then the trunk itself is clothed in these, the bases of the old fronds, which is like some huge kind of dinosaur scales. So James, now we've had our London walkabout, what do you think are the lessons we can learn and the conclusions we can draw from, from what we've seen today? Well, I think one of the first things we can say is that urban botanising is just super exciting. We've seen some really fantastic things today and just how impressive it is to see what a melting pot, what a soup of different botanical wonders um, cities can be. But in terms of the future, you know, we can use London as a sort of, uh, you know, a thermostat for what's to come for the rest of the country. Climate change seems to show no signs of abating in terms of our climate warming up. And so what we see in London one year, in a couple of decades' time, we may be seeing further north in the country or in other urban conurbations where they don't get a lot of frost. So this is truly, truly exciting because it's like a little glimpse of the future that awaits other gardeners. And that concludes our big tree treasure hunt. Big thanks to James for trekking across London with me. But before we go, I wanted to share a few things that I'm working on at the moment, now that we're almost at the end of February. I'm sowing chilies on a sunny windowsill, or you can do it in a propagator as well, a heated propagator. They do like a bit of warmth to get them going. So get a seed tray, fill it, water it, spread your seeds on top, space them out quite nicely, and then just cover them with a tiny bit of vermiculite or sieved peat-free seed compost. We talked about this on the podcast before. If you're growing peat-free, you need to use a specialist seed compost, and we always recommend you grow peat-free. So yeah, get your specialist peat-free seed sowing compost. I'm gonna hang on a bit for my tomatoes. I know some people sow them in February. I've got fairly limited indoor space. I don't have that many windowsills, and they're already full of houseplants, so I tend to hold on my tomato sowing for about, about another month maybe three weeks, because otherwise your tomato plants can get quite big and they need repotting before you can put them in the greenhouse towards the end of April in the south, into May or even June in really, really cold areas. And if you haven't pruned your autumn raspberries yet, do that, cut them all the way to the ground and they will then shoot up and give you a lovely crop. If you can't remember whether you've got autumn fruiting raspberries or summer fruiting raspberries because they're pruned differently, Look at the tops of the stems. If you can see like little remains of like wizened fruit and flowers, you've got autumn fruiting raspberries and then all you want to do with those is chop them right down. And finally, I wanted to respond to a listener's question. Scylla Redwell sent us a few pictures of a dark green shiny leaf asking for an ident. Well, Scylla, it's an acanthus. It's a really interesting and architectural plant in the most literal sense of the word because it actually inspired those beautiful Greek column tops that you see on like the Parthenon and things like that. I hope you enjoy it. It's called Acanthus mollis and it's a herbaceous perennial. It will get up to 1.5 meters, five feet if you let it. And if anyone wants to plant one, there's a really good variety to look out for. It's called Ruladan and it has the award of garden merit, the AGM. That's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. 
With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.